look at something that is maybe a bit unusual in the context of a Sunday school prize giving, though I, I don't think it is. I think it fits very well. But something that's very difficult for me to talk about and very difficult for, um, for you to listen to, to be quite honest, because it's such a, a difficult subject and such a key subject in the church and in our society. I'm going to have to speak very carefully, and you're going to have to listen very carefully. And um, what we're going to look at is tied in with what's going on in the church in Scotland, with all the trouble that's in the church of Scotland at the moment over the question of, for those of you who've been living on another planet, the uh, uh, Church of Scotland and its assembly voted to allow um, people who are living in uh, gay partnerships, homosexual or lesbian partnerships, to become ministers in the church. And some churches are in the process of, some individual congregations are in the process of leaving. There's a great deal of, of fuss about it. And that issue is a key issue. It's an issue in terms of our own society and culture because of so many things that are going on. And I want to try and explain what the Bible says in, I hope, what is a balanced way. And that's why I say you have to be quite careful how you listen, and I have to be careful what I say. Usually when I'm asked the question in public meetings, what do you think about homosexuality, it's not normally a question. It's usually, um, why are you such a homophobic bigot? And that accusation is one that's made uh, constantly. So as we look at this, we're going to look at God's Word, at what God's Word has to say about marriage, because I'm, this is not particularly about homosexuality. It's about what marriage is. And as we do that, I'm conscious that there are different applications to different people who are here. So we know that there are people who are single and who will remain single, and we do not want to give the impression, and I don't think the Bible gives the impression, that somehow if you are single, you are a lesser human being. Otherwise, you've got a problem with Jesus and also with Paul. So there's sometimes a danger that people feel, well, we're talking about marriage, so that's not about me because it's about... I'm single, but um, in reality, how we understand marriage and how our society works is very important for single people as well. We're also going to talk about children, and I'm fully aware that there are people who would like to have children and feel the pain of not being able to have children, and again, we recognize that, and we're not wanting to say or imply at all that not having a child is somehow... uh, uh, a punishment for you, or whatever particular reasons that people say. Uh, if you're interested in that particular subject, I'm not going to be able to look at it this morning. Uh, there was an excellent article in the record uh, about that, and there's a lot of good material. And again, if you're homosexual or have homosexual inclinations, whatever, what I'm going to say this morning is not about attacking you, and it's, it, it, it's actually not primarily on that issue at all. So, um, I had a a lot of this put out on a PowerPoint, which uh, didn't work out, so you just kind of have to bear with me, and you're going to need your Bibles, particularly you need them open at Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Maybe the simplest way to begin is just to define what marriage is. It's the union of a man and woman to the exclusion of all others, voluntary entered into for life. 
That is the definition that was passed into law by the Australian Parliament just a few years ago. Now, that's the standard understanding of what marriage is. However, the complaint is now that this is discriminatory, especially against those who are homosexuals. Uh, On this very platform, during the election hustings, some of you were here, you would have heard everyone, the SNP, Labour, the Conservative, and the Liberal, every single one of them saying that they were for uh, gay marriage. And uh, I was chairing the thing at the time, and I said it was very difficult for me to hold my tongue, but I spoke to them afterwards and said, you're wrong because of your understanding of what marriage is. And it was at that meeting that I realized that so many of our culture, that the argument of gay marriage is that that will be lost eventually because people don't understand what marriage is. In our culture, we already have restrictions on marriage and nobody, I think, wants rid of them. A father cannot marry his daughter, you can't marry two people, and you can't marry a 12-year-old. So, we, we accept that marriage is not for everybody. There are some ridiculous examples throughout the world of people trying to redefine marriage. There's a Japanese man who's petitioned the Japanese government to be allowed to marry his avatar. And if you don't know what an avatar is, don't worry. Um, basically, it's a makeup cartoon character. It says it's the only person he's got a real relationship with and he should be legally allowed to marry her. Um, there are numerous cases of people being asked to marry various animals and so on. And that is obviously so ridiculous. But it is very, very difficult for um, the church in, this, in our culture on this particular issue because either you yourself may feel this or people at your work will feel this, that why would anyone, like our four politicians, why would anyone be opposed to two human beings who love one another being able to formalize that in, in a, a state marriage? Why would, why would anyone be opposed to that? What kind of bigot are you? And when you put the question like that, th- that's how a lot of people see it and a lot of people understand it. So when the Church of Scotland voted to change its uh, position, the Scotsman newspaper said that, last, the Church of Scotland has come into the 21st century. Um, well, I think what we are obliged to do as Christians is to look at our own culture, including our church culture, and just ask, what does God say? What does the Bible say? So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read two passages, Genesis chapter 1, and first of all, at verse 26 on page 4. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they'll be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And then across into Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, in looking at both these passages and in saying what marriage is, I'm very grateful to uh, a man called Christopher Ashe, who is an Anglican vicar, wrote a wonderful book called Married for God, another man called Nicholas Totini Filippini, who is an Australian uh, ethicist and has a wonderful, uh, couple of wonderful articles, and another man, an American, called Albert Muller, who's a Baptist pastor in the United States and is a very good writer. But just to summarize what Christopher Ashe says about, from Genesis uh, 1, about humanity and particularly marriage. First of all, he, he says that human beings are given dignity. We are made in the image and likeness of God, verse 27. All human beings are given that dignity. We have a unique dignity that is not shared by animals or by plants. We are different. We are. We have much of the same genetic makeup as a cucumber, but we are not cucumbers. And we have uh, a lot of similarities to animals, but we are not just animals. We are made in the image and likeness of God, which, as the Catechism puts it, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. There is something godlike and divine about human beings. Now, there's a whole lot of application and further things that you could say about that, but that is important. Secondly, we have a unique privilege. We are entrusted with the unique privilege of filling the earth with men and women who will care for it. Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. This is not, as many people have argued, a mandate for environmental destruction. It is rather a mandate for gardening. It's a mandate for cultivation. It's a mandate for development. It's a mandate for culture. It's a mandate. Um, uh, we might like the idea of living in a wilderness, but most of us, I think, prefer to have civilization as well. So we're given that privilege. Thirdly, human beings are created sexual beings. Male and female, he created them. We are created male and female. And that is very important. Gender distinctions did not come about because of the fall. They're not a result of the fall. It's actually part of the diversity of creation that male and female are different, and there are uh, important and specific differences in that category. The fourth thing is that we are um, 
to rejoice in our Creator. Joy, we have to have dignity, we have a privilege, we, are, uh, we have sexuality, we're male and female, and we are to have joy. We are to live in thankful dependence upon God, says Ash, and cheerful obedience to His command. And that is true of all human beings, but in the context of marriage, marriage should have that. There should be dignity, there should be privilege, there should be uh, the sexuality, the different sexes, and the joy that would come along with that. Now, I like alliteration, so um, that, by the way, was just the introduction, but I'll be a bit quicker with the other stuff. I want to look at three things, or four things, really, that define what marriage is or people think define what marriage is. And the first is friendship. Look at chapter 2 and verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This is probably one of the most misunderstood verses in the whole Bible, because we always read that as though God is saying, it's not good for the man to be lonely. And so, the way to get rid of loneliness is to get married. And lots of people take it like that and think that that's what marriage is. And then they find themselves with the problem sometimes of getting married and feeling lonely within the marriage. Is it really the case that unless you are married, you will not be loved? And that unless you are married, you will be lonely? That's what an awful lot of people think or fear. But that's not what the passage says. This is not about, this is just good for the man. God is seeking here a helper. Why? Because he had a job to do, and he needed a helper. It wasn't good for the man to be alone. For Adam, no suitable helper was found. It's not just about loneliness. We often think of marriage, well, it's my personal needs and my fulfillment. Actually, what was happening was there was a a companionship in sharing and working together. It's interesting. Um, in a more sexist world, people might say, well, there's a man, he's got a job to do. What does he need a woman for? He should be another man. That's not what happened. Why not another man? Because there were to be children. And in also, uh, we'll say more about that in a moment, chapter 2, verse 23, there's the joy of what uh, we'll call sexual intimacy. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Uh, this is probably the first love poem This is the delight that Adam sees in uh, Eve. If you have ever read John Milton's Paradise uh, Lost, he has has some fantastic images and pictures uh, that he creates with words of that. But the whole idea is that basically Adam's looking at Eve and he's going, wow. That's a kind of very paraphrased version of Paradise Lost. He uses a lot more words to say it much more poetically. But that's it. He's just looking and going, wow. Here's here's my, my helper, and this is not just a work colleague, if you like. I think that the, the whole idea of marriage as the cure for loneliness, almost solely or only, it, it creates all kinds of problems. You don't need to be married to get rid of loneliness, and because you are married doesn't mean that you do get rid of loneliness. Also, an unmarried person is able to serve God as well. The New Testament, Paul, for example, and also Christ indicate that there are ways that an unmarried person can serve God better than a married person. 
And an unmarried person is able to experience love and intimacy. I don't have time, but if we were to go through uh, the New Testament especially, and the sayings of Jesus and Paul about love and intimacy, the vast majority of it is not to do in the context of marriage. The point here is just simply that marriage is not about meeting your needs. There's a self-centered view of marriage which destroys marriage. We use the phrase all the time of being in a relationship. If you're on Facebook, you get the wee thing, you know, relationship change or whatever, um, which is just awful. But what does it mean when we say relationship? In our culture, that phrase relationship, are you in a relationship, is used entirely of uh, either marriage or sexual relationships, where most of our relationships are not along those lines. Um, all of us, if you're on Facebook, you should all take in a relationship, I mean, many relationships, different kinds. You'll notice that in all our soap operas, if you ever watch any of them, and I still confess to watching one, um, but if you ever watch any of them, you will notice that everything is always geared towards sexual relationships. They're either in one or about to be in one. That's where all the creative tension and everything comes from. But the, the biblical understanding of marriage in terms of friendship is this, that marriage is unitative. What it means is that, that, what that means is it takes, it's two people coming together and becoming one. It's based on a promise, a covenant that is m nourished by mutual love between the two parties, that there is a commitment to one another, and there is a self-giving. Marriage is not about my needs being met. Marriage is about my sharing and being involved with the needs of someone else, not even primarily so that their needs will be met, but so that together we can glorify and serve God. And that's the second part of marriage. Now, you could say about the first part, well, okay, how can that not work for um, a homosexual couple? You could leave that as a question mark or an argument, but it, it falls apart completely when you consider the second part, which is marriage is about fruitfulness. Chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, we don't like this idea. Um, well, we say we don't like it. Um, in the church here, it appears as though there's an abundance of fruitfulness at the moment. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, that, that, is, that is wonderful. But we still, in our culture, we're growing with this idea that marriage is not primarily about providing an environment for children to be brought up in this world. We don't like that. We've cut off the idea of marriage being the environment for children in different ways. Now, let me explain this. The danger with what's happening with our government, both the Scottish government and the uh, British government, and what's happened with the Church of Scotland is this. It's not about the question of homosexuality. It's about the question of the definition of marriage and changing the definition of marriage to something else. Why is the state involved in this at all? Because, not because of the relationships between two adults, but because it involves children, and children are the future of the state. Marriage is procreative. When you get married, you're open to the possibility of new life and cooperating with God in the generation of new life. And the bottom line is, with all our economic things and all our concerns and all our gadgets, if we don't have children, then we won't have a society, we won't have a community left. And one of the big problems right now, for example, in Italy, 
in East Germany and in many towns in Russia is that there are very, very few children. Somebody said, writing about this, that you go to uh, some of the towns in Italy and it's like uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang where the child catcher's been and gone. The children are all hiding away. They're not there. Um, now, it's interesting. In other countries like France, um, bizarrely, um, the French are, seem to be far more productive. I just found this uh, last night. I was reading one of my magazines. Uh, the average French woman has 2.0 children. The average British, 1.6 which is nowhere near enough to replenish the population. What's interesting about that, though, is that the uh, average child per mother, if the mother is born in the UK, is 1.6. If the mother was born in Pakistan, but is you know, here in Britain, gives birth in Britain, it's 4.7. Within the UK, only 47% of children are born within marriage per mother born in the UK. So if you're a mother, you're born in the UK... 47% will have children uh, within a marriage relationship, but 53 won't. Whereas if a mother was born in Pakistan but has a child in Britain, it's 98% are born within the marriage relationship. Now, why I mention that is because all the statistics and all the reports show that the best environment to bring a child up is within the context of a marriage, and we are absolutely creating havoc and sowing a whirlwind of disaster for the future in thinking that, well, mum and dad would be nice, but that's not really all that important. Does it matter if it's just mum? Does it matter if it's just dad? Does it matter if it's dad and dad? Well, all the evidence is that it does so. What's also happened in our culture is that contraception has had a huge impact upon marriage because it's allowed people to think of marriage without children. It's allowed people to see sex as recreational and not with deeper meanings. But the child really is a sign of their union, the genes of these two people coming together. I don't like it personally. You look at a child and you say, oh, he looks like his father, a baby, or he looks like his mother. And I'm beginning to think I must get older because uh, I've been looking at children recently going, oh, wow. You know, I mean... Um, the Brian and Louise's wee one recently. I ah, just thinking that that child's double of his dad. Pray for him. <laughs> Her, sorry. <laughs> and you know you see that, but but it is actually the case that it really is quite extraordinary. The stork doesn't bring the baby, and they're not born in test tubes. It is just a. It, it is a, a child is a product of an act of love and commitment within a context of fellowship uh, and c commitment to one another. The state wants to promote permanence and exclusivity in marriage in order to protect the rights of the children, the security of the children, and the identity of the children. And the identity comes strongly from the family. And that's why same-sex marriage will never be marriage. No matter what the state says, it will never be marriage. Because it does not provide children, nor permanence and stability for children. Now, some people will say, and, you know, you can get rounded by other means. Two men, for example, could pay a woman to carry a child for them, even if they were using some of their own sperm and so on. But at the end of the day, no matter what you say, the child has not originated in their relationship, and part of the identity of that child is outside that relationship. There always has to be someone from outside the relationship. 
No gay relationship can generate children. They must either come from a previous relationship or from technology involving someone else. And the mother still has to give birth to the child. Now, in our culture, we've got so confused about all of this that one of the big things that's happening, and for me, I'm, this is very, very important. We think of the kids who are here in the church and the kids we do when we, with the discovery camps and so on. One of the big things that's happened in our culture is for an awful lot of people, there has been the removal of the father. Technology and society are fragmenting parenthood. In, in abortion, you will always hear the argument used, it's the mother's body. Well, so it is, but it's not just the mother's body. It's also the father's body, and it's also the baby's body. The sociologist says this, the idea of a father who relates to the child through the mother and is bound to the child through the relationship to the mother is fast disappearing. As fatherhood disappears, more and more children are being brought up alone. A man will father a child and then say, well, I don't care. It's not to do with me. You want the child. And they don't see the responsibility. And it has a massive impact. There are numerous studies which show that a girl is more likely to be initiated into sexual relations if she lacks a good relationship to her natural father. You take that out of the picture, and a girl will look for male approval from elsewhere. There is a huge amount of research also that shows that things like drug use is also very often related to dysfunctional relationships, especially with the father. At the end of the day, says our sociologist, if same-sex marriage is allowed, it will affect everybody. Everyone begins life as a child. Everyone needs that relationship with a father and mother. If the state no longer supports and honors traditional marriage, and if it no longer encourages couples to produce children naturally, then the circumstances for children will become entirely contingent. Now, none of this is to say that a single mom who has to bring up a child on her own for various reasons or that a child brought up in those circumstances is somehow um, to be disapproved of and to be shut out and so on. It's just simply to point out that by far the best environment for a child to grow up is in a context of a loving and committed family relationship between the mother and the father. Now, what will happen is, as this all changes, education will change. Traditional marriage will no longer be taught. It will just be romance. So marriage is just about romance. Marriage will just be a private romantic relationship. And so our kids, and some of you who are older may say, no, this is never going to happen. But uh, I think there's some material still on the back there. It, It is now happening. Our kids in primary schools will be given books that talk about the king and king or my two daddies or my two mums. The Stonewall organization is insisting that this material be taught in primary school and that anyone who doesn't teach it is, by definition, homophobic and so on. Now, that's why the biblical view of marriage is so anathema to these people because it says part of that teaching about marriage is that there's a, a fruitfulness. Third thing, faithfulness. Marriage is a witness to God's love. And it's a witness to um, love between human beings. And one of the reasons that we have marriage is for sexual faithfulness so that society won't disintegrate into sexual chaos. Over and over again on our media and sometimes in our schools, but not always, but sometimes the impression is being given that sexual relations just like any other appetite. And if you want, you go out, you find someone, you sleep with them. What does it matter? 
Any society where that has happened has ultimately destroyed itself. There's a man called Paterim Sorokin, who's the founder of sociology at Harvard University. And he pointed to the regulation of sexuality as the essential mark of civilization. He said this, civilization is only possible when marriage is normative and sexual conduct is censured outside of the marriage relationship. Without that, the society will collapse. Now, when in the 1960s, people began teaching and educating, saying, well, let's just you know, be more sexually open and so on, what, what difference will it make? Some people did warn them. But the difference is now seen all over the place. The difference is seen in the many, many, many broken and dysfunctional relationships. The difference is seen with the people who abuse their own bodies because other people abuse their bodies. The difference is seen in so many ways. And the Christian view of marriage is, no, this is about faithfulness. It's about being committed to one another. It's about saying, life isn't all about sex, and it's also about saying just simply, I'm going to be committed to one other person. So the last area is just simply this, that of fulfillment. Some people say, well, if you're going to deny marriage to people, you're denying something that's essential to people being human. And we, the Bible would completely dispute that. I do not accept that anyone here who is single is unfulfilled or more unfulfilled as a single person. I think to regard Jesus as less than human is horrendously wrong. To regard the Apostle Paul as less than human is horrendously wrong. There is a blessing in marriage, and there's a blessing in also in being single. And no one is being denied anything. What about back to where we came in? Are we not fulfilled human beings if we don't have children? Well, no. Again, Jesus and Paul, but also in the church. I remember being in South Africa, in Pretoria, in one of the townships, a township in which apparently a million people lived in abject poverty. And it was horrible, horrible to see the squalor. But also in the church, it was incredibly moving when they took up the collection. Now, um, we're not going to do this, but it would be interesting to see how it would work. Because when they took up the collection, they didn't come around with a bag to you. You had to come up to the front and give it in. And I, I was absolutely amazed because the drums were going, you know, and, and the music, and it was great. And then they said, now the mothers in Israel will come up first. I'm thinking, the mothers in Israel? And the, all the older women came forward and put their, and they danced all their way up, you know, and they were so happy to be giving money. Um, I'd love to see you lot do that, <laughs> both dancing and being happy to give money. But they, were, <laughs> they did that, and they came up. And what I loved about the whole thing was every single older woman went, whether she was a mother or not. Because as far as they were concerned, the children in the church belonged to all of them. And it was an incredibly moving picture. It wasn't like, here's the mums, and then here's the other people who haven't had children yet, and we, they're left out. So, I, I always remember that, and I think that we belong to the family, and we all have children together. I also want to say this. If you're looking for fulfillment, complete fulfillment in another human being, it will never happen, and if you get married, you will put such a burden on both yourself and the person you're marrying that you will destroy yourselves. You cannot find complete fulfillment in another human being, at least not one that lasts. You find that only through life in Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes we can be a little bit obsessive in terms of our relationships, where 
as though a guy will find a girl and say, right, well, this girl is the person who's going to make my life worthwhile. That is so unfair, both upon the girl, and it's so unrealistic. Fulfillment ultimately comes only through Jesus Christ. And I would want to argue, um, I, I find it very difficult to see how anyone can honestly stay married without having a common commitment to Jesus Christ where you learn to forgive and, and share with one another and so on. So where does all of that leave us? I want to apply this just in, in, in four situations, just briefly. Firstly, as a nation, we have to plead and pray with our politicians to stop destroying marriage. The four, the one woman and three men who are up here, I liked them. They were nice people. They were good people in lots of ways, and they were profoundly ignorant. And in their ignorance, they are going to destroy our culture and our society. We must challenge our schools to uphold or to at least allow the biblical version of marriage. And as those of us who are parents, we need to make sure that we know what our children are being taught and also in terms of um, what's going on in, in, in the media and the culture and things like that. We should not be ashamed to say that we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. That's what the Word of God teaches, and the Word of God teaches it because that's what is best for human society. And we really do have to pray for our politicians, and we have to let them know. In the church, in the church situation, that's a, a, a more difficult thing. I have a lot of friends in the Church of Scotland. I have a lot of friends who are ministers. I think in the past three weeks, every single day, some, even before I came out this morning, uh, a Church of Scotland minister wrote me a letter, and uh, I'd be, you know, wanting to talk about things, wanting to struggle where we're going. Some of, of people who are my friends are going to be leaving the church. Uh, others are going to think they're going to stay for a while and see what happens, and others think you should never, ever leave. But this is the importance of what the Church of Scotland did, and we need to pray for uh, Christians in the Church of Scotland, and especially for some of the ministers, like, and I'll mention him by name, Dominic Smart in Aberdeen, who I saw this week, and who's been battered black and blue for months, just for graciously, and Dominic's very gracious, he's far more gracious than I am, graciously upholding the Bible's teaching, and he has just been run through the mill. We need to pray for men like him, and he's decided to leave, and his congregation have decided to leave, and pray for them. Because what happened here was the church did vote to allow people who are living in same-sex relationships to be ministers. Now, just for a minute, imagine that the free church said, it's okay for David Robertson to teach you God's Word and to be living in an adulterous relationship. That I wasn't married, but I was just living with somebody, or maybe two people. And the, and the, and the church said, that's okay, it doesn't matter. It's a loving relationship. How would you feel? You would think this is hypocrisy. This is, how can this be the Bible? How can he teach the Bible when he's de deliberately going against it? And you'd be absolutely correct. What the church has done, the reason that it's so horrendous is this. The church has basically sanctioned sin and said to God, you're wrong, and specifically stated that the Bible is wrong. To hear a commissioner stand up in, at the whole assembly and not be rebuked or ruled out of order was saying, this is what the Bible says, to read out the Bible, and then to say, we now know that the Bible is wrong. At that point, you, to me, I, I, it's, it's, it is incredibly wicked. 
As a result, the church is now giving a lead to the nation, which is evil. Our politicians are confused. It's little wonder when those who are paid to proclaim the Word of God negate that very Word. I thank God for good friends in the CFS who'll stay and fight on. I thank them for their courage. But I think it probably is time even for them to question whether it's even possible now to fight on. I think to belong to a church which says to God, you're wrong, is just too much. I think these men will be vilified and abused for leaving, and they will be mocked. There was an article, I was given an article this week in a newspaper which mocked Dominic Smart and Gilcomston South as being a bunch of Calvinists who are out of date and all the rest of it. It was nasty, it was vicious, it was horrible, and no reply was allowed. So I think in the church situation, um, not from any sense of, I, I hope not homophobia, or any sense of smugness, because we've, all of us have got enough problems, but I think we need to encourage and pray for those who are making that kind of stand. I think as a community of the church here, we must seek to support and help the wide variety of families we come into contact with and that we are, the dysfunctional, broken families that we come across or are part of. We must all be mothers and fathers in Israel. We need to show what it's like to belong to the loving extended family of God, and that's why creche and Sunday school, Sunday school is such a joy. And it is a joy. You should be queuing up. I don't know where Davy is, to do, some, to do the creche. And if you're not physically capable of doing the creche, you should be saying, oh, I'm just so mourned for that. I, I w- really wish that I could do the creche. Um, now, I realize that isn't always the case, as one Sunday a wee while ago, there were 13 kids, and uh, it was pretty awful uh, for some people. But generally, it's just a fantastic thing. I listened to a sermon this week from Mark Driscoll, and it was typical Mark Driscoll, um, he said a great reason for doing creche for young guys. He says, young guys, you need to get in and do the creche because you'll meet young women and they will see you holding a baby and they'll go, wow, he's prime father material and that's you in. Um, that is not a good reason for doing the creche, young guys, but it might work, I don't know. <laughs> but I just thought that was typical Driscoll. You know, the better reason for doing the creche is they're your kids. Same as anyone else, they're your kids. And I just think that's part of, of where we're at. May God grant that children who are brought up in this church are brought up in a loving and caring community. Um, I love the fact that uh, my two older children, Andrew and Becky, were brought up in a church where there were no kids their own age, but they were brought up in a Christian family where they had lots of aunts and uncles and other people who cared for them. We don't have that now, but we do have the opportunity to share and care for one another. So as a community of the church, we need to try and help in a wide variety of circumstances, including people who come to us who are, who, whose family life has been absolutely awful. We would never exclude and we would never shut out anyone. And we would never condemn. Because what we would, would look for is for people to be uh, restored and healed and helped in so many different ways. Thirdly, we have to help those who struggle with sexual temptation, whether heterosexual or homosexual, and to affirm that our identity is not primarily in our sexuality, but in Christ. I I hope this doesn't offend anyone. I, I hope it won't. But homosexual people are welcome in this church, as are heterosexual people. And I want to 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 share what the gospel is 
and to communicate that and to point out that we're all sinners who we all need salvation and that there is a biblical standard that is given of marriage and that sex should not be out with marriage. And that applies across the board, whether heterosexual or homosexual. I think sometimes Christians, Al Mohler, got in enormous trouble for suggesting that sometimes in the Southern Baptist people had been homophobic. And I think sometimes there's a danger of that occurring in the church today as well. But we don't do that. But what we're saying is we're going for a higher standard, God's standard. And then maybe the final thing to say is this. In our lives, we should note that in a failed and spoiled world, serving God in marriage is not just about having children. It's about living and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that needs to be done in our marriages. And if you are a Christian couple who what you've done is you have your private Christian life compartmentalized, and then there's your family life, and then there's your work life, and then perhaps there's your social life, you need to repent of that attitude because you will destroy yourself and your family by having what is fundamentally an unbiblical and selfish attitude. The point of your marriage is not your own personal gratification. It's not even about your kids. The point of your marriage is living to the glory of God. That can be done by those who are not married as well. That's why marriage is not the be-all and the end-all. That's why in this church we don't have first-class citizens who are Christians who've managed to get married, and the bonus ones are the ones who have children. And then we have second-class citizens, those who haven't got married. That would be entirely wrong, and yet it is sometimes how the church can be perceived. We honor everyone, whether married or single. That is, that is what we should do as a church. As I said, our fulfillment is found in our following Jesus Christ together. Now, I hope that that's explained a bit of Um, or the basis of where we're coming from when we're dealing with this. When you have to speak to your friends, you have to be very careful how you speak. It is not something that you can just rush into. You will say one thing, and they will hear another. But I would strongly recommend that you uh, grasp yourself and understand that this is not primarily about sexuality. It is about marriage and what marriage is intended for. And that is about absolutely everybody. It's not about just individual choice. It's about our whole community. And in my view, our community will completely fall apart unless there is a a restoration of biblical Christianity in the culture as a whole and the teaching about marriage uh, in society in particular. And we have to pray for our politicians that they will stop taking us down this blind road to destruction which we are on. That's why this issue is so important, and that's why we care about it so much. Not because we're a bunch of homophobic bigots who are following an ancient text which doesn't realize what modern society is about. It's precisely because we do realize what modern society is about and what is happening that we are going to stand up for the poor and for others by upholding what the Bible teaches about Christian marriage. Let's bow our heads in prayer. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk.
www.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org Thanks for listening.